The future is a million little choices. A little extra work or a little extra play. Reconcile or let the sun go down on your anger. Get up or push the snooze button again. Your future is a million little choices. And it starts today. If you'll find your place in your Bible with me at the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, really we're going to look at one verse out of chapter 6 and then we'll move into chapter 7. If you're just joining us today, we are in a study of the book of Ecclesiastes. We're not going to read every verse of Ecclesiastes. There's a number of times when Solomon repeats what he's teaching. He observes and then he makes an observation or an application, I should say, uh, of what he has observed, and it repeats itself, comes at it from a number of different angles, and so we'll, we'll be looking at this book for at least another three or four weeks, uh, but today we are in chapter 7 specifically, and I want you to follow along with me beginning, if you will, in verse 12, and I'm going to read down, if, if you'll follow with me, through verse 14 of chapter 7, chapter 6, verse 12. For who knows what is good for man in life, all the days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to, the, than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Interesting verses, wouldn't you say? Solomon is writing for us a journal he is giving to us his thoughts as he is observing life. Uh, he's trying to find meaning and purpose. He's trying to find a reason to go on living this life. And as he looks at life purely in an under-the-sun perspective, 
just what man can see and what man can observe. He doesn't have at this moment a vertical perspective. He can't see it from God's point of view. He's looking at it from man's point of view. He goes through and he writes down his observations and he writes down the applications. Now, what's interesting as we continue in this study today is that when you get to chapter 7, there's a turn that Solomon makes. And in making this turn, he goes from a lot of the observations to begin giving us proverbs. Those verses that we read, especially in chapter 7, are proverbs. If you don't know what a proverb is, it's a short or a pithy statement that's made concerning some aspect of life, some truth or some insight about life. We know that Solomon spoke 3,000-plus proverbs. And some of the Proverbs that Solomon spoke are here in this seventh chapter. And today, rather than having one theme that sort of everything else wraps itself around, we're going to be looking at several different things as we talk through these different Proverbs, and then we come to the end and we focus on one particular Proverb that we didn't even read just yet. At the end of verse, uh, chapter 6 and verse 12, he, he basically is saying, let me tell you about life. Nobody knows what's coming next. Nobody knows whether tomorrow we'll have hardship or whether it'll be a day of, of pleasantries. Nobody knows what's going on except God. God is the only one who knows the future. But as he moves out of chapter 6 into verse 7, he says, while we might not know what the future holds, I can tell you this. There are some things that are better than others when it comes to the choices that we make in life. Now, the reality is we make choices, lots of choices, every single day of our lives, right? And the more good choices we make, the more good outcomes we have. The more bad choices we make, the more bad outcomes we have. And so when it comes to the matter of making choices, we want somebody to inform us, give us some instruction about the choice we have to make. Uh, we want somebody to tell us their experience. You go online when you're looking for somebody to do some kind of work or you're about to buy some kind of product, and what do you do? You, you look at people's experiences. You look how they graded that particular company or that particular product. You want to know, is it something that I should, I should invest in? Is it something that I should undertake? Uh, you want to have somebody who's been there and done that to give you some advice some counsel as you're making these major decisions. Understand, you made dozens of decisions this morning. They're basically inconsequential. I mean, decisions like, you know, what am I going to wear today? And what time am I going to get up? And uh, what time am I going to get to the service? And, you know, where am I going to sit in the service? You made a lot of decisions that in, in some ways are inconsequential. You can sit anywhere. You can wear different things. It wouldn't make a whole lot of difference. But there are a lot of decisions in life that make a major difference, right? A lot of decisions in life that determine uh, what's going to come of your life down the road. There are a lot of decisions that affect your eternity. And so you, you want advice. Uh, you want insight. You want understanding. You want knowledge. You want wisdom. You want experience. You want people to speak those things to you so that you can make the best decisions. And that's what Solomon is doing in his Proverbs. He's saying there's a lot of decisions you got to make. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You can't be certain what's going to be on tomorrow. But I can tell you that there are some things that are better than others for you to do in the process. Now, I'll just tell you up front, 
you're probably not going to like some of the advice that he gives. But I hope that you'll at least stop and consider what he has to say. Because in doing so, you will gain wisdom today by listening to the words of Solomon in these Proverbs. He begins in chapter 7 by telling you something that is better. By the way, the word better is used 13 times. The Hebrew word translated better is used 13 times in the 7th chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, seven of those times it's translated as the word better. Sometimes it's translated as good or pleasing. Uh, it's translated as joyful one time in the, in the seventh chapter. Thirteen times he's going to tell you some things that are better than other choices that you might, you might be facing uh, that you want to stop and you want to think about. What's the first one? First Proverbs in chapter 7 verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. I think you'd agree with me on that, wouldn't you? He says it in Proverbs 22, verse 1, in a little different way, but he says the same thing. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. What does he mean by a good name? He's talking about a good reputation, that you are respected by other people. Sometimes I hear people say, I don't care what anybody else thinks of me. Well, you might not be able to control what everybody else thinks about you, but every one of us, at least as believers in Jesus, should care what other people think about us. That's our te testimony. That's our reputation. And a good name is better than precious ointment. I mean, you put on that beautiful smelling uh, perfume or that cologne that you put on in the morning so that you can smell pleasant as you go through the day. But better than the smell of that perfume or that ointment is the name that goes with you, the reputation that you carry, the way you're known by other people. In the New Testament, when it comes to choosing leaders in the church, at the heart of leadership isn't how good you can preach a sermon or how good you can sing a solo, or, or how well you can play an instrument. At the heart of leadership in the local church is the aspect of your character and being known in a community as somebody who is respectable. They might not like you for all of the positions they, that you take, but they respect you for your disposition and the way you carry yourself in that community. When I arrived here back in December of 1982, we were a very small congregation of people, and I'll never forget a couple of men coming to me, men that I had learned to trust over those weeks as I was just getting into the ministry here, and they said to me, Pastor, there's a man in the church that if he comes to you, we want you to know that no matter what he tells you, don't believe him totally shocked me. I'd never had anybody say anything like that before. But they said, he'll come and he'll volunteer, but he'll never show up. He'll tell you that he's going to purchase something that we're in need of, but he'll never buy it. And they went on through this list of things. And I just couldn't in my mind, I couldn't, I couldn't rationalize. How could it be that somebody could say those kind of things and, and try to present themselves in one way and be somebody totally different and yet over the months that followed, I found it to be exactly the truth. On more than one occasion, he volunteered to do some things, but he never showed up to do them. On more than one occasion, he offered to help in some areas, financially to help in some areas, but he never came through to help in those, in those areas. 
And finally, after a number of months, probably more than a year, 16, 18 months, telling me things that he was going to do and not wasn't going to do. His reputation was that he was a liar, that he misrepresented himself, that he he wanted to sound impressive, but he never followed through on anything. Finally, I, I just, one day when he told me something, I said, why do you keep telling me things that you don't do? I didn't say it quite that way. Why do you keep telling me things that you don't do? And he, he backed up and he hem-hawed around and it wasn't a week or two or three and he wasn't there anymore. And I wasn't happy about that. I'd rather him have changed his character. I'd rather him changed his conduct. But the reality is all of us should care what other people think about us. We might not be able to control what everybody else thinks about us, but we should care what other people think about us because that's our testimony. That's our reputation. And to have a good name matters because even if people don't like where you stand, they at least appreciate the disposition, the manner in which you carry yourself. But it's the second half of this proverb that's really hard for a lot of people. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Oh, my goodness. Solomon must have been a real killjoy. I mean, everybody wanted, to, everybody wanted to run around life with Solomon, don't you think? The day of death is better than the day of one's birth. But I want you to stop and think of it the way Solomon was thinking about it. The day of birth, you're just entering into the veil of tears that you have to experience when you're going through life. But the day of death, the veil of tears has ended You no longer have to see the injustices. You no longer have to experience the pain. You no longer have to go through the tears that are experienced in living out life. And all of us know a newborn baby. There isn't anything, to me at least, more beautiful than a newborn baby. Somebody said, I've I've, I've seen some babies that aren't pretty. In all of my years, I have never seen a newborn baby who wasn't beautiful, innocent, and beautiful. But can I tell you something? We all know that ahead in the lives of those newborns, there are trials and tribulations and troubles they'll have to deal with. They'll have to go through those things. But at the other end of life, you finished. You have no more of those things you have to face. And as Solomon is thinking about the things that he's looking at and he's observing in life, he's saying the day of your death is better than the day of your birth because the day of your death, all of your troubles are over. The day of your birth, they're just beginning. I was thinking about this proverb related to my own parents. My daddy went to heaven uh, 12 years ago at 87. My mother went about two and a half years ago at 96. And, you know, I would call him on the phone or when I was visiting with him, there were numerous conversations that we had about things that bothered them. They were concerned about the lack of patriotism in our country. They were concerned about the way churches were moving away from the truth of God, moving away from the things of God. They were concerned about the disrespect that was being shown from one man to another, from one woman to another. They were concerned about these things. And on many occasions, we had conversations about those things. They were bothered by the things they were seeing and they were experiencing that they didn't experience earlier in their lives. My daddy and mother came out of those depression years They were a part of that builder generation. My daddy served in the Army Air Corps. 
Before it became the Army Air Force, he was three years stationed overseas away from my mother. And when he came back, he, like all of those others of that generation, were determined to build something better for their children. And they did, didn't they? They did, didn't they? And now they're looking at things and they're seeing things devolve, things that are declining, and they're disturbed by it. And I thought recently as I was thinking about this message today, I'm so thankful that my mother and daddy are not here to have to experience COVID, not to have to experience the political arena that we have seen in recent years, not to have to experience some of the things in this life because death in this case is better than birth. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that you ought to wish to die, but he's telling you that when you come to the end of life, all of those troubles are over. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, I mean, they are really over, aren't they? Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the, it's to be present with the Lord. The Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. And so you can say in this proverb what Solomon was saying, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth because in death you're released from all the struggles of this life. And yet those who are coming into this world we wish them the very best, and we pray for them to experience the very best, but we also know that there are struggles that happen in everybody's life, and they have yet to face those things. Then he moves along in verse 2 down to verse 4. He continues these proverbs. He says, better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. That's the second time he's used that phrase. He used it in verse 2. He uses it again in verse 4, the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Again, somebody says, wow, I don't think I want to hang out with Solomon very much. He says he'd rather go to the funeral home than he had to the local parties that are going on around. But again, you have to stop and you have to remember what Solomon is saying and try to understand the wisdom that he's imparting. He wants you to understand that life has to be lived in view of the fact that all of us are going to die. But a lot of people don't live that way. They live as if, this, as if this life is all there is, and they live as if they have all the time they want to live this life. And that's just not the reality, is it? That's just not the reality. Uh, this matter of laughter and feasting and going to the house of mirth, going to the comedy clubs and sitting in front of the television, listening to the comedy channel and just laughing and playing through life. If you don't stop and you don't remember, you only get so much time in this world. And you don't want to waste that time that you've been given. And please understand, Solomon is not a killjoy. As a matter of fact, it's Solomon who says in the book of Proverbs that laughter is good. You know what the next words are? Like a medicine. Look in your Bible here just a few pages over, and I'll point it out to you again. Chapter 8, verse 15. Notice what he says. Chapter 8, verse 15. 
So I commended enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry, for this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives to him. Look at chapter 9, verse 7. He says, go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white. Let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the, under the sun all the days of the vanity, for that is your portion in life. Seven times in the book of Solomon, he says, enjoy your life, enjoy your life, enjoy your life. He says it over and over again, enjoy your life. He's not trying to be a killjoy. But what he does want you to do is learn that every day is a gift from God. And we need to learn to seize the days that God has given to us and to live those days to the, full, to, to the fullest and not in foolishness. Live those days to the fullest and not in foolishness. And there's something about going to the house of mourning that becomes the schoolhouse of learning that helps you to quickly prioritize your life as to what is really most important. You know that to be true? You know, you've heard of the wedding preacher. I think I'm the funeral preacher. I think over the years of my ministry, I've done, I have to have done as many funerals as any preacher in this community, if not more than any preacher in this community. And you add to that the three or four times more that I've attended people's funerals that I have attended. I've been to the funeral home over and over again. I've stood with people. I've sat there in the room with people in the last moments of their lives. Maybe, maybe they were just a few days out from passing. Maybe they were just a few hours out from passing. And some of them couldn't communicate, but those that can, could, could, could communicate, I have never yet to this day, ever once, ever, ever heard anybody in those last moments of their lives, the last days of their lives, ever say, I wish I'd made another business call. I wish I'd spent another day at the office. I wish I'd closed another deal. I wish I'd taken that business trip around the world to make that, uh, that deal on the other side of the world. I have never once ever heard anybody ever say that. But I have heard them say, I wish I had more time with my family. I wish I had more time with my husband or my wife. I wish I had more time to serve God. I wish I didn't have to leave so early and leave my family behind. I wish we could all go to heaven together and we could all be at the same time in the presence of the Savior. Because death, the house of mourning, is the schoolhouse of learning that quickly prioritizes what is most important in life. Is there a place for laughter? Is there a place for a house of mirth? Is there a place for the house of feasting? Absolutely. But you better stop and remember that God's only given you so many days, and you better seize the days that God has given to you. I did a terrible thing when I was a young minister. We didn't have anybody to leave our young children with when we had funerals, so we took them with us to the visitations, and we took them with us to many of the funerals, not all of them, but to many of the funerals. And on one occasion, I got there, as I always do, early before the family got there, and I took my two children, elementary age, Mary's laughing now, but she took my two elementary age children, I said, let's go back into the back recesses of the funeral home. 
Daddy, won't there be a body back there? I don't know. But we'll deal with it when we get there. Now, I did know. I knew that there wouldn't likely be anybody back there. People sometimes say, you know, Pastor, should my children go to funerals? A lot of that depends on you as a parent and on the age and maturity of your child. But do you understand children need to understand that life doesn't go on forever? Children need closure in death as well. And for some children, it is the right thing to do to let them go and be a part of and see what's going on. They need to understand that it's not all about laughter. It's not all about playing, that you only get so many years. And you don't waste the years that God has given you. That's what Solomon is saying. That's why he wants you to go to the house of mourning, why he wants you to mourn. He wants you to stop and think about so that you invest yourself in the best things in the course of this life. And then he moves to another series of Proverbs in verses 5 to 7. He says, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. He says it's better. It's better to have a good name. It's, it's better the day of your death than the day of your birth because you're facing at birth all of the trials and tribulations at death they've ended. It's better to go to the house of mourning because you prioritize your life and you see what's most important. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. You ever had anybody sing your praises and then stab you in the back a little bit later? look you in the face and tell you all the nice things buttering you up and then turn around and tell somebody else something horrible that's not even true about you. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise. Um, we don't like the rebuke of the wise, do we? We don't like the word rebuke. We don't like the word correction. I don't like it. Do you like it? In all of my years, I've never enjoyed when somebody corrected me or somebody rebuked me in some way. I never enjoyed it. It wasn't like I signed up on the list. This is my day. This is my time. Like a doctor's appointment. This is my day and this is my time. This is the opportunity for me to be rebuked today. But when it's somebody who's wise, when it's somebody who knows God and knows his word, and they come to you and they tell you the truth, even though the truth hurts, it's far better than the kisses of an enemy. It's far better to hear the words of rebuke than to have the kisses of an enemy. It's more important than to have the song of the fools singing to you. You see what he says about the song of the fools? It's like the crackling of thorns under a pot. It's like you take a bunch of brush and you throw it into the fire. And what does it do? It makes a lot of noise. It flares up really quickly and then it's gone. But those who listen to rebuke, those who listen to correction are people who become wise over the course of their lives. It's better than even the laughter of fools. You stand around and you laugh together. You enjoy the jokes that they're telling, 
More important is you will be willing to listen to the correction of those in your life that have your best interest at heart. I want you to see what Solomon says about that. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10. And I want you to follow with me for a few minutes through some scriptures that Solomon gives us in the book of Proverbs where most of his Proverbs are found. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 17 He who keeps instruction is in the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes astray. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. Chapter 12, verse 1. But he who hates correction is stupid. That's Solomon. That's not me. Look at chapter 15. Chapter 15. Notice verse 5. A fool despises his father's instruction, but he who receives correction is prudent. Or look down at verse 10. Harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way, and he who hates correction will die. Or verse 12. A scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. Or verse 31. The ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. Or look at chapter 17 and verse 10. Chapter 17 and verse 10, rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. And that's just the beginning. That's not even all of them that he has. You hear what Solomon says? We, We live in a generation where nobody wants to be corrected. You can't tell me anything. By the way, that's why preaching has changed. We don't want a preacher to come and speak with authority on the basis of the Word of God. We want a preacher to come and tell me stories that make me feel better about myself. And Solomon says here, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. It'd be better for me, it'd be better for you for me to stand here and tell you the truth though it hurts or for you to tell me the truth though it hurts, than it would be for us to sing one another's praises and it just simply be the kisses of an enemy. Iron sharpens iron, right? And we sharpen one another when we're honest with each other. Now look, preachers experience lots of criticism. We get lots of correction. You probably do in your businesses as well. But in a public ministry where you're speaking on behalf of God from his word, you get a lot of criticism. You get a lot of correction. I'm reminded of a little cartoon, it was a Charlie Brown cartoon. And you know his crabby friend Lucy? And she was playing out in left field. And at one point during the game, Lucy walks from the outfield to the in, infield pitcher's mound. And she says to Charlie Brown, that fast, your fastball is too slow and your curveball is too straight and your changeup is a letdown. And then she says, why don't you win one for a change? And then she goes back to her outfield position out in left field. But the next batter comes to bat. Charlie Brown throws him a pitch. He hits, his, hits the ball in the air out to left field and right at Lucy But she doesn't do anything. She makes no attempt whatsoever to catch it. No attempt whatsoever to catch it. And when Charlie Brown asked her why she let it drop, she replied, I work in an advisory capacity only. (laughs) 
There are a lot of people in my life that work in an advisory capacity only. It's uh, easy to criticize from the cheap seats. It's a whole lot different when you're on the field and you're playing the game. It reminds me of a man who was caught in adultery and he confessed and he repented and he began to spend all of his time at church and the activities of the church and over time he became very self-righteous because he had turned his life around and pretty soon he was giving the pastor preaching advice and one day the pastor told him, I liked you better as an adulterer. At least you were humble. At least you were humble. There's a lot of people that love to criticize. They think their gift is the gift of correction. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about people who really care about you and people who really speak the truth into your life. Young people that are sitting in this room, and I say young people, that's anybody below my age, and I'm 39. (laughs) Young people in this room, be willing to listen to the wise around you. Even if it sometimes hurts, be willing to hear what they have to say. They can see things that you don't always see. And it's the wise person, Solomon says, who's willing to listen to that kind of rebuke. He goes on in verses 8 and 9, and listen to what he says. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. It's better to have a good name. The day of your death is better because your trials and tribulations are over. It's better to go to the house of mourning because it makes you evaluate life and see what's really most important. It's better to listen to the rebuke of the wise than to listen to the songs of fools. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. Think about it, ladies. Some of you men who love to cook, it's not so good when you're beginning that cake, is it? I mean, you got flour all over the countertop. You got butter that's beginning to melt and soften so you can put it in. You got a bag of sugar that's open. You've got things that are strewn everywhere. You got the mixer that's out, and it's nothing pretty about the bowl going around and around in the mixer, is there? All of the ingredients being put in. But guess what? You get to the end, you put it in the oven, and you take it out, and everybody's taking pictures and putting them on social media. Look at this cake. You got it all decorated. You got all the colors. You got all the icing on it. Everybody, nobody ever shows what the kitchen looked like before. Now you see the cake. That's what he's saying. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. And you'd agree. I mean, butter on its own, that's not so much. I mean, sugar, yeah, flour. Who wants flour by itself? I mean, it's okay when it's been mixed in the the mixer, the batter, to eat some of that, but put the icing on it. I mean, then it really gets good. I was thinking about this proverb this week with, with my wife and I. This Friday the 13th, we will celebrate our 45th wedding anniversary. Can you believe that? She survived 45 years with me. It's hard to believe. But can I tell you something about marriage? When you put God first and you honor the Lord in your life, that the end of the thing is better than the beginning. 
I thought I loved her more than I could love anybody in all of my life when I was 18, just about to turn 19, and we got married. But I can tell you 45 years later, even though it was Friday the 13th, 1976, I can tell you 45 years later, it's better 45 years later than it was at the beginning. That would have been a good place for all of you men to say amen. <laughs> you could have jumped right in there. Your wife, you, you'd have got some points there. Amen, amen, amen. It's better with her all these years later. <laughs> We're a little slow this morning. It's better to be patient in spirit than to be proud in spirit. That anger, that anger, it's better to not let it rest in your bosom. It's better not to hold on to it. It's better to forgive. That's what Solomon is saying. Do you hear his Proverbs? Do you hear the Proverbs? I got to get one more in before we get to the last one. Look at verse 10. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. It's better to have a good name. The day of death is better than the day of birth because you still have life to face. It's better to go to the house of mourning because it helps you prioritize your life. It's better to hear the rebuke than the songs of fools. It's better the end than in the beginning. It's better the former days than these, they say. And he says, when you keep looking back and you keep living in the past and you keep saying, I wish we could go back into the past, he says that kind of inquiry is not wise. It's not wise. You can't live in the past. I, I, sometimes I think about living in the past. I don't want to go back to the black and white television set that we had in our living room that had tubes in it, capacitors and tubes in it, that you had to wait on it to warm up in order to be able to watch it. And you only had a few programs that were, you know, you could watch when your, your black and white television was on. I, I don't want to go back to the days where I got to get up and walk across the floor and change the channel. I don't want to go back to the days where my mother hung the clothes out on the clothesline, Right? I'm thankful for the things that we have in the present. And yet we have this tendency to always think about the past in this fanciful way. But stop and think about this. Americans live longer, they retire sooner, and they, do, they travel more than in years that have been in the past. I mean, there's a lot of good things that are going on all around us. And yet a lot of people miss it because I wish I had. I wish we could go back. I wish it were like this again. Solomon says that's not wise, but I finish on verse 20. It's not even a verse we read, but it's one of his Proverbs. Please look at it with me. Verse 20, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. I want you to listen to that again. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. To do good, that is, he's supposed to be doing good. Those are sins of omission because he's not doing them. He does not sin. Those are sins of commission because he is doing them. And there is nobody who doesn't commit sins of omission or sins of commission. There is nobody who is just on this earth. 
Now let me remind you of something as I bring this to a close. This is the observation of a man who is seeing life purely from an under-the-sun perspective. He's not looking at it at this moment from God's point of view. From God's point of view, we know this already. But from man's point of view, he's looking at others and he's looking at himself and he's saying, there's nobody that doesn't sin. I want you to notice verse 21. Also, do do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. It's not just a matter of him saying, yeah, those people out there are sinning, but this person in here does too. Isn't that what is the real problem in the world where we live today? It's called sin. We live in a world that is broken by sin. Have you read the news recently? Have you watched any of the news on the television recently? Do you keep up with what's going on in this world and around this world in some way? Do you see the way your neighbors treat each other? Do you see the inhumanity with which we treat other people sometimes and other people treat us? Do you see what's going on in the society around us? Does it not disturb you? It ought to disturb you. But the reality is it's that way because every person in this world is a sinner. Every person. The Bible's clear about that. It says the same thing in 1 Kings 8, 46. It says the same thing in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. And it says the same thing in Romans chapter 3. Turn over there with me. Romans chapter 3. Your problem today is that you are a sinner. You say, preacher, I don't like those words. Listen to the rebuke of the wise. Your problem is not that you need to put it, be put in a utopian society where everything around you is better that'll make you better. Your problem is that if even there were a, a utopian society and they put you in it, you would corrupt it because you're made out of the same stuff I'm made out of and all of us, every person coming into this world is a sinner. We are all sinners before God. We have sins of omission, and we have sins of commission. There is nobody who is righteous, not even one. Verse 10, Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What are you telling me, Pastor? I'm telling you that every one of us needs a Savior. And the Savior is Jesus Christ. None of us can save ourselves. 
None of us can fix the sin problem that we have. None of us can pay the penalty for our sinfulness in full. If we have to pay the penalty of our sinfulness, we will pay for eternity separated from God. But God, in his great love for us, sent his son, Jesus, to pay the penalty on behalf of us all and then to offer it to anyone that would receive it. We talk about the good life. The good life starts when you meet Jesus Christ. And the reality is there's nobody listening to my voice. There's nobody not hearing my voice that isn't a sinner before God. And every one of us needs the Savior, Jesus Christ. And I stand before you. You come and you listen to me week after week after week. You watch the services week after week. And you like the little bits of information and truth that we hand out and wisdom that we pass along. And you love the things that help you to have a better life and to live a better life. But you got to understand what you need more than anything else is a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have got to come and personally trust Jesus for yourself. I can't do it for you. I'm so thankful. December the 26th, 1973 was the day my life changed because on that day I received Christ as my Savior. And the only thing I would do differently if I were to go back is I would receive him sooner because the only mistake I made was waiting 16 years before I trusted in Jesus as my Savior. Now look, we're not finished in the series of Ecclesiastes. We love what Solomon has to say about injustice and about the unfairnesses of life. And we love his observations and we, we love the wisdom that he doles out in his Proverbs. But the real problem is, here is a man looking at life from a secular point of view he doesn't look at it from the modern psychiatrist's point of view. He recognizes that the reality is the problem in mankind is that mankind is sinful. Mankind is a sinner. And that we need a Savior in no medication, no counseling, no amount of times of therapy will ever take care of that in your life. The only one who can take care of your eternal destiny and forgive your sins and make you a child of God and give you the gift of eternal life is Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for your sins and rose again. And I stand before you in the middle of this series and I look at the proverb of Solomon for they, this is a, a man looking at life under the sun. He's seeing life like a lot of people outside of this building see life, sees life. And what does he say? There is not a just man on the earth. You mean Solomon, with all of your money and all of the people that come through your palace and all the things that you do, all the people you interact with and all of the international per personalities that you visit or that visit you, there's not a single just man 
The problem in our world can only be fixed by the Savior. One person at a time, trusting in Jesus Christ to save them from their sins.